book of Matthew. And we're going to continue in our studies of Matthew, in our series that we've entitled, Not of This World. And today we find ourselves at the portion of Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at um, verses 13 through 16 today. So I'm going to be reading from the ESV, which is pretty close to most of the translations unless you're using the King James Version. You can just listen. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And I'll just read that verse 16 again. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, we worship you today. We continue to worship you today. As we've already spent part of our morning just singing of your goodness, of your glory, and of your excellence, Lord. Now, the posture of our hearts is one that we are bowed before you, both to receive but also to humble ourselves. Father, should you choose to correct us and to teach us today, which we know that you will. We thank you, Father, that you do so by the grace of God um, in that this transformation, Father, is not of ourselves, but it is the power by the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And so we ask, Lord, today that it is your cause that we would seek, that it is your will that we pursue today in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we, we do so with glad hearts because we love you and we worship you in the name of Jesus. We say amen. Raise your hand if you've heard or if you uh, feel like this is a familiar text of book of Matthew. Go ahead, put your hands up. This is um, another one of those portions. Rick has never heard it. I just want to point that out. He didn't raise his hand, so this is going to be just for you today, Rick. Um, as I said last week, this is another one of those portions of text that we often grow up like singing songs to as kids and uh, memorizing portions of, of it uh, to recite in Sunday school. And um, as always, the challenge is, is to um, elevate ourselves above and outside of preconceptions and uh, assumptions of like, oh yeah, I know what this is saying, and um, and it's just about my witness, and I'm going to move along. So uh, I hope today to just take these four verses and put them in a place that is applicable for us right now. That's what we're seeking to do. As we're going through this book of Matthew, we're doing so with a desire as elders that the Lord would establish us as his people now. Not just as his people, not just that we would feel good about ourselves or so confident about our place and, and perhaps our spiritual maturity, but that God would establish us as, as this community, as his church, to be used by him for his purpose now, for his kingdom now, for his glory now. 
And I know that that is something that you desire as much as the eldership of Capital City Church. And so we just continue to mine this vein of looking to see what are the distinctives of the people of God um, today on whatever this date is, June 23rd, 2019. What are the lives that we live? Why are we now and, and what is so different about us? And so um, as we begin today, I want to ask a question that is um, a rather simple question, and it's this. What is the church? When we think about church, what is it that comes to mind? Probably a lot of us might go to what our, grow, our, our upbringing would be, which is the church is a building, um, or the church is a, a place or a destination. The church is a, is a gathering that happens once a week where we come and we sit and we receive um, someone teaches from the Bible and we sing some songs. Oftentimes, this is what comes to mind when we think of the word church. When someone says, yeah, what is church? Or I'm going to church. I'm going today to church. And I think that today, as we sit here in this room, that we're fighting a battle against not only the kingdom of the current, present evil age, which we've talked a lot about presently, that there's a present battle that we're engaged in as those who are in the kingdom of God with those or with the kingdom of the present evil age. But we fight not only an external battle, but I believe as well that we fight a battle within our own walls. There's an internal battle that we have to war and that we wage against. And I think that throughout the years that we've allowed the present age as well as influences outside of these four walls to help us define and teach us what church is. And think about that just for a moment. Think about your experience of having been a part of a, of a Christian community or a church at any point in time. And think of how oftentimes what we do has some semblance of what is done outside of Christianity. And it's not always bad, but what my point in this, this morning is to say that I believe that unrightfully we have allowed external influence to come and to help us form what is our understanding of what church is. When we look at the Old Testament, we see that God's people were just that very thing. They were a people. When we look and we read through the Old Testament, we don't read it as the story of a church moving throughout history. We read it through the lens of a people, a group, or oftentimes a nation, right? The nation of Israel, or a race, as the Jews. This is how, this is the lens that we look at it. And I want to say this morning that it's nothing has changed today on this side of the cross as it was back then. We are still a people. The church is a nation. The church is a race. The church is a tribe. And we, last couple of weeks, we've been kind of launching from First Peter, and I won't read it again, but just that language is the language that Peter uses. A holy nation, a people set apart, a race. That's the language that people uses. And I want to just 
Let that sink into us this morning. And in so doing, let the Lord tear down preconceptions of what this is. Because in doing so, it changes how we approach both today and how we leave this building and go out there and live our lives for the rest of the six days out of the week. So we are a nation. We are a tribe of people. And with this nation and with this tribe, listen to this. We have our own set of governance. We have our own set of laws. We have our own set of rules, of language even. We have our own culture that defines us as this people and as this nation. We even, in a sense, have boundaries. Both temporal, but not internal within our own hearts. This culture has a space. This kingdom has a space, and that's what we've been speaking of the last couple of weeks. And as part of this tribe, these definite and recognizable differences are what we should seek as a people, is what we should experience. These differences are to be experienced. They're to be sought after. But see, I'm afraid that we're somehow missing the magnitude of the importance of this distinction. And I, myself, fall prey to falling back at times into the idea that church is just this building that I walk into on occasion. I mean, how easy. We'll leave here and we'll go about our day and we'll do the various things. We'll have lunch. We'll be with our family, etc., etc. We'll have a day of rest. And we've forgotten about this moment, even if it's just for an hour or two, as we've gone throughout our day. And we forget that we're connected and we're part of something that's so much bigger and significant and greater and distinct. But if we allow ourselves, by the grace of God, church, to be reminded of the fact that we are a part of something, and in that being a part, there is great significance and difference, I think, as I said a moment ago, it will change how we live outside of this space. And so this somehow of, of missing, I believe, the magnitude of this importance is because of the loud cultural voice that I think the church as a whole, especially in Western Christianity, the cultural loud voice, the church in ways has capitulated to it. And it's allowed itself to be influenced by an external source rather than the one that resides within us that we have been called to be a part of. And that's a broad brush that I'm painting with. But my hope today is just to kind of give us this sense of a broad picture of what I believe the state of the church is of which we're a part of. And the reason that this is important, and I'm going to say more on this in a moment, is that I think that part of the calling of this faith community is to be a forerunner, a herald of this distinctiveness. There was a book that I read recently, and it was talking about modernity and digital media. And he makes this claim, it was a Christian author, and he was talking about the effects of, of all of our modern devices. And he makes this statement that there is a need, and he called it digital monastery. There's a, de- a, a need for people to be so incredibly radical way out here on the fringe because what it does is it tells all the other people that follow, listen, this is not an unattainable standard. 
Does it mean that everybody will follow? No, not necessarily. But what it does is it holds it out to say, listen, this can be yours should you so, cho- should you so choose. And I believe the heart of that is, is, is a part of who we are. That somehow we are out here to say, listen, you can be this radical. You can be this distinct. You can be this set apart. You don't have to look like A, B, or C in this particular area of your life. I want to read something to you, if, if um, I may, and I'll try to do it quickly. I've referred to this book the last um, couple of weeks, and I just want to read to you a portion in, in terms of this cultural capitulation. This is a book um, called Gospel Culture, Living in God's Kingdom by a man named Joseph Boot. And he says this, Since the gospel effects such a great transformation, we must conclude that the dreary condition of our culture today is in large measure due to the apostasy of the church and Christian family from their respective callings. Since the so-called enlightenment, Christians have steadily surrendered the various organs of culture, education, law, arts, charity, medicine, government, almost entirely to the increasingly humanistic state. We've progressively retreated into a pietistic bubble, concerned largely with eternal verities and keeping souls from hell, and we have faithlessly limited Christ's jurisdiction to the institutional church. Are you following this? The result has been the marginalization of the Christian church and a change of religion in the public sphere. Some freedoms for the gospel remain, though threatened, but history shows that freedoms fought for are soon forfeited. Sorry, freedoms not fought for are soon forfeited. If we love God and our neighbor, then a full-orbed gospel culture for all of life will be of great importance to us, not simply our inner piety. We will want to witness to the reality of our cosmos-renewing gospel and call people and nations to repentance and the life, joy, beauty, and truth that is found in Jesus Christ and His rule. There's that kingdom again, alone. This great concern for cultural transformation is found everywhere in Scripture. The Bible is filled with accounts of God's servants confronting sin, idolatry, and false worship, and thereby transforming kings, kingdoms, and cultures with the truth. And then he goes on in his book, which I would encourage you, if that that segment interests you, you can pick it up yourself. And he goes on and, and he begins to give in detail these accounts of men and women who confronted the culture and therefore transformed the kingdoms and the kings. At this present age, as this present age becomes more distinct, the resulting effect should be the same for God's people. Think of this. As it grows darker, we ought to naturally grow brighter, whether we do something or not. But the very nature of God's people being set apart logically would lead us to believe that as it's darker, we shine brighter, only naturally. However, as the modern church has bowed its knee in conceded areas, which has been given, which it has been given mandate to influence with the gospel, 
it's no surprise that the resulting homogeneity between the church and its increasing assimilation into this present evil age is what it is. As we concede this particular area, culture takes over. And we concede a little bit more. And I thought his statement of that kind of receding into our own little bubble and therefore relinquishing that which God has called us into was uh, very well stated. Think of this for a moment, how the outside influences what we experience here or has in some way. In the natural, culture cries out for individualism and self-autonomy, right? It doesn't take us, we don't have to go very far to hear that message. In addition, culture cries for personal culture worship. What is, that defines you, what makes you, is elevated as being of such greatest value. Politically, we hear a cry for open borders, perhaps, or closed borders, depending on what you're listening to. By that, I mean it's no longer encouraged to assimilate into the nation's culture where it once was. Those who came into this country were often encouraged to take the language of the country. Obviously, by law, you have to give yourself to the laws of the nation, thereby assimilating yourself into the culture. Less and less, that's becoming true. And finally, because of these things, within culture as well, there's this cry in some segments of this anti-nationalism. That there's, it's wrong to hold to a single standard of distinctiveness. We don't want that anymore. The individual is propped up to the detriment of the greater. So if we think about those, those cultural cries, the narrative of culture, how much of that has made its way now into what we experience as a church? Churches are often comprised of individualistic and self-autonomous people, where they are often, or at least in very part, the highest form of their own personal law and governance. And I think if we're honest, we all experience that. Is that not just the natural state of the heart of man? It's to rebel against God. So it isn't a surprise in the sense that we experience this, but in terms of its voice, in terms of its presence, I believe this is growing more internally as it grows louder outside of these walls. The result of which is that we're now seeing the discarding of Scripture as the plumb line and the source for absolute truth and authority. Right? I can't believe I sat with a friend of mine not too long ago whom I love so dearly. And I listened to him speak. And as he spoke, I could hear this cultural narrative in his heart come through. Someone that said he loves the Lord was like, ah, you know what? I don't know if this is actually true. Boy, that grieved my heart. And I wouldn't think that people who once stood beside me would speak in such a way. But it's happening more and more. We're seeing this culture worship mentality that doesn't see one's past as just that, as something that's left behind, something that's dead, but it holds onto it as unique and formational in one sense of self. So in other words, as personal 
culture, as personal backstory, is given such a high place and value outside of here, and as it becomes more present within these walls, what we see is less and less of the new creation of this was the old man and this is the new and more and more of just this is who I am, this is who I was and still has some formative part of who I am today. Not counting oneself dead to sin and alive to Christ, but instead alive to both. Alive to sin and alive to Christ. All of this works towards, whether it's intentional or not, an anti-nation of God mentality. So if we see anti-nationalism within culture, internally it manifests itself in a sense of anti-kingdom culture, if you will. And again, these are subtle. Probably none of us in here would, would ever say that, well, this is what I think, this is how I feel, but how easily it creeps in to our hearts and minds. The message is we won't assimilate, but we'll hold to our unique identifiers. Therefore, flying in the face of Jesus' own words of whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But the Christian life, the true biblical Christian life is one of assimilation. It's one of self-denial. It's one of servitude and servanthood. And it's one of kingdom culture homogeny. You know what the word homogeny means, right? It's to be, it's a sameness of a likeness of, of, of without distinctiveness from others. So there's something here. And it isn't that I'm saying that we all look the same, that we necessarily all speak to the same. But as a broad stroke, and this is again our point through the book of Matthew, is that what we're finding is that to be a people of the kingdom of God is to be something that is radically different than what it looks like out there. And as I said a moment ago, as it gets darker, we ought to shine brighter. And that's really captured me this last week as I was thinking and preparing for this morning. And that's without us even having necessarily to do anything. We don't even really have to try, it just is. At least it just ought to be. And please don't hear what I'm saying this morning. I'm not railing against this community. But what I'm hoping, I just felt like the Lord, as I was preparing for this week, it was just the Lord impressing upon me this, this as I said, this kind of radical sense of forerunners. That this is something that we are a part of. That we are to look like. That we are to be that standard bearer, not that we'll do it perfectly. I don't, I don't think I need to qualify all these statements, but I think you understand. I hold it in humility, but I tell you, I hold it in a sense, I approach that with trepidation. Like, that's a hard place to be. It's hard to be out in front. It's lonely. And you become more and more marginalized. The darker it gets out there, we were talking about this as elders this week, that some of the views that we teach some of the things that we say here, that you guys are hearing, they're becoming the minority voice within Christianity, you guys. And we might even find ourselves within our time or the next generation's time becoming increasingly, increasingly a smaller and smaller voice and perspective. That will be a hard place to be. 
when culture rails against us and when the church rails against us as well. But we have to find ourselves so firmly rooted, not in the words that I speak, but in the words that he has spoken, so as to allow ourselves not to be shaken. This is the being built on the rock that the Lord promises us. So I say all of this today because I believe that the warnings of becoming tasteless, which Matthew, which Jesus speaks in the book of Matthew, and constricted illumination, which is what he also pictures in Matthew 5, I think they've already begun within the church to a degree. A tastelessness and a constricted illumination. So let's look at what Matthew gives us, and in doing so, I just want to ask that the Lord again would open our hearts to receive what he has for us, to change us, and perhaps we might even need to repent. We might even feel in our own hearts that there's an area for repentance today. So Matthew gives us two pictures of what the church, the nation, the people of God ought to look like in this watching world. The first is salt, and the second is light. Salt holds two primary purposes. Just in the natural, think of it for a moment. Salt holds two primary purposes. Its first purpose is to flavor, and its second purpose is to preserve. To flavor and to preserve. To flavor and to preserve. Paul's command to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 4, 6, and we looked at this one particular Sunday as we studied through Colossians. He says this, that their speech would always be gracious, and listen to this analogy, and seasoned with salt. What an interesting statement. That their speech would always be gracious and seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The picture is an injection of savoriness into their speech, one that is appealing and attractive. And you might remember me saying this as we taught through Colossians. It's one that enhances that which it's injected into. That's the picture here of the saltiness that Paul speaks of to the Colossians and encourages them to live in life. This too is Jesus' aim in Matthew 5. The life of the Christian within the kingdom of the king is not only to be attractive in terms of its visibility, it's not only to be appealing to those who would look on and see, but it's one that is to enhance that with which it is in. It's to enhance. So if we exist in this time and space, we not only desire that we would be appealing to those outside of Christ who look at us, both collectively and individually in our own personal lives, but there is an active sense of an enhancement, of an, of an engagement with the culture around us. That culture would benefit from our presence. Our savoriness ought to be of benefit and add to the flourishing of those who come into contact with it. Add to the flourishing of the lives of those who come into contact. That's what it is to enhance. That's what it is to flavor. In addition to the world's flavor enhancement, as preservers, as preservers, 
We are to work to prevent its corruption. Preserving speaks to keeping. It speaks to maintaining. It speaks to actively seeking the protection of this particular thing. It's what it is to preserve something, to maintain it in in its current state. As salt in this world, the people of God should be actively pursuing righteousness for the sake of our city and our nation. And that's Jeremiah's statement in Jeremiah, verse tw- uh, chapter 29, when he says to seek the welfare of the city. That's to be an active preserver of culture. Not that we want to keep culture as it currently is. I know I might have said that seemingly contradictory to what the point of I'm, what I'm really trying to say. But you get my, my point in saying that we preserve is that we affect in a positive way. And as we know as the people of God, as Christians, we are the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, if that is internally true, it must also be externally manifested. That this righteousness should show itself in some way and thereby affecting that in which we exist within. Can you agree with me on that? Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, he says in Jeremiah 29. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And that, as I said last week, that speaks to the shalom of God, the peace of God. But not just tranquility, but peace of God in terms of right standing. We are to seek the shalom of God, the reconciliation of culture to God, and thereby bringing peace. That is the command. So saltiness is both passive as well as active. On the one hand, it naturally just adds to the world around it. And on the other hand, it actively pursues its impact on human life. This is the saltiness that we are to be in Matthew 5. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. That's the world. Not just the globe, but this, our present sphere in which we exist. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. We all have our space. We all have our sphere in which we are to be injected and enhancing through our righteousness, through our holiness, through our distinctiveness. And then the, but interestingly, Jesus gives a warning. And he says this, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? The word here, in, it's lost its taste, it's tastelessness. Tastelessness is the warning. That which has lost its distinctiveness and no longer contributes to the society around it. It no longer contributes, not to what culture would want us to contribute. You know what I'm saying. I'm talking in terms of what we've been defining here. A tasteless salt no longer enhances that which it's placed upon. It becomes useless. It has no distinctiveness. And therefore, Jesus says, it's to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's refuse. It's of no worth. That is the danger that the church faces becoming. That's a scary thought. It is already happening. I believe it is. I believe that it is. And Lord, help us. 
that no longer exists for its effect on human life. It's interesting, this word in the Greek for tasteless, it has a translation that literally is, it becomes foolish. That word tasteless, it has this application, this implication of being foolishness. Think about that for a moment, how foolish we would look to our intended purpose should we become this no distinctive, tasteless, lifeless people. All of this for what? For nothing? But that's the problem. That's what I was saying a moment ago. This cultural narrative, it's become about the individual. It's not become about the mandate or the purpose or the mission or the collective unity of the church. It's become about personal fulfillment, personal satisfaction, holding on to some glimpse of, well, I'm just going to escape hell and I'm going to float in the clouds in heaven. Right? But we've missed this picture of the new creation, that heaven isn't the ultimate destination, but that God will do something new. And all the while, this picture throughout Scripture of God doing something new with His people. We are the new creation of Christ Jesus. The church who denies its importance as culture makers, culture changers, culture enhancers, and truth injectors is no longer acting as the church that God has created it to be. And I believe that today the Holy Spirit is telling us to wake up. Wake up! And begin to live as this people that is my people. As, to, as a person that's been ransomed and rescued that's been transferred from darkness, as someone that's been made new, wake up. As I said last week, stop living with one foot in and one foot out. Let's live as those who are in the light. Let's live as those who are distinct. And we encourage each other together so that when I'm living over here with one foot in darkness, you say, Matt, doggone it, that's not consistent. You're not living the way that I have heard you speak of living. We all need that from each other because we all do this. It's like Lord of the Dance, right? That's what we're doing. We're Lord of the Dancing. And as I said earlier, I believe that we are to be a people, a church, a nation, a tribe who not only seeks truth and loves its application of the gospel, of the beauty of the gospel in our own personal lives. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think that we are also called to be a church who stands now in this place, in this time, and heralds what is true. And as we'll see in a moment, is that city, that collective gathering of people who stand on a hill and who shine bright as a, as a lighthouse shines and speaks of impending doom and peril to those who would not heed its warning. That that is what this church is called to be. That we are called to be culture makers and changers and effectors for the kingdom of God. How he'll do it, I don't know. But he'll do it if we allow ourselves to be used in such a way. What greater journey and adventure could there be than to be used by God? And I know that many of you have experienced this in your life and desire this and have sought after this. But what an adventure to do it together to say, let's go out there and kick some tail. 
if I wasn't being recorded, I might actually say it. <laughs> and we're all thinking it. So the second is light. So salt, it flavors and it preserves. And I'll wrap this up here shortly. The second is light. We all know where this is going. We're all saying it. You are the light of the world, verse 14. A city set on a hill. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You are the light of the world. We exist to show the way. Jesus, who is himself the light, who shines through his church. This is why we exist. As a light, we point the way. We illuminate and we point the way. And I love this picture of a city. And he juxtaposes it with a lamp. We're not a lamp on a hill. We're a city on the hill whose collective light shines brighter than any one individual. There's a, 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 an author by the name of Alan Crider, and, and in one of his older writings, he would, he, he's not only just a, a writer in general of, of theology, but he also would write, and um, he quoted someone. I'm going to quote a quote, if that's okay. I'm going to quote a quote. It was kind of an obscure one, but I read it this week, and I went, that's cool. And I'll put it up here for you to read along with me. He, he quotes this old it's almost it was like seemingly anonymous, it's, but it's not because he's got the guy's name, Marcelino, but he's some old like Nicaraguan thinker, all right? So we'll just leave it at that. Yep, from a long time ago. He's from Nicaragua. They know his origin and they know his name. He says this, a lit up city that's on top of a hill can be seen from far away. As we can see the lights of San Miguelito from far away when we're rowing at night on the lake, and this is really where it's at, a city is a great union of people. And as there are lots of houses, together we see a lot of light. And that's the way our community will be. It will be seen lighted from far away. And I just thought, that's such a cool picture of this intent that Matthew 5 speaks of. And again, it's not that it's a lamp. And he doesn't use any singular type of analogy but he talks about the collective. And we know, of course, that Scripture too, that God himself is more concerned with this city, with this people, with this nation, than he is with just any one person, for by which this city exists to be used as the vehicle for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Jesus then goes on to say how useless it would be to light a lamp only to place it beneath something, and therefore restrict its illumination that it was created to display. Think about that for a moment. Gosh, man, I do that. I do that to my own discredit. This illumination that I am, we take it in these moments and we stifle it. For whatever reason, whether it's fear whether it's a lack of faith at the time, whether it's just being tired, we all do it.
We do it every time we act contrary to who we really are to be. Where there is light, people can find their way. Where there is light, people can find their way. But where there is darkness, people stumble and are lost. We are the light of the world. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of of your rising. God promises that the light of the glory of Israel here in Isaiah chapter 60 would attract all the nations. And as we know, that light is Jesus himself. The glory of the Lord, Jesus Christ, whom now is our message, whom now is the one that we herald. It has come. He is upon us. We are the light of the world. In, God, in John's gospel in chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as he, John would later say in his letters in 1 John, he says, but if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The light of Jesus now shines through his church, through us, through our fellowship with one another. This is the unique character of God's people. This is the uniqueness of who we are. That we shine God's light in all of our imperfections and silliness and goofy little things that we are in idiosyncrasies. Still, God uses us. He uses you and he uses each one of us, both individually and also collectively, to shine his light. That should bring us to a place of humility, should it not? Man, if you guys knew how goofy I am. Some of you know a little bit better than others. That is only the grace of God. All right? It's that we would show people the way we are the light of the world. Not that we would point to ourselves, but the light of the world, this light that we carry, this light that we shine, it always has a focus an aim that is Christ Jesus. So to be the light is to point others to Christ himself. It's not just to be good people. It's not just to fill in the blank. But it has to be, it must be. It is only true light if it points to Jesus Christ. That is a very important distinctive. Paul's famous words of follow me as I follow Christ. He isn't saying just follow me and I'm going to show you how to do it. But he's saying you can emulate me as I emulate Christ. That is the call of the church. The goal of our witness is not that others would emulate our lives, but that they would recognize the source of our distinctiveness. And that is what he is saying in verse 16. In Matthew chapter 5. 
Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. Our good works are evidence of their origin. They speak of where they come from. The source is our Heavenly Father. The source of our light is our Heavenly Father, and it always points back to Him. And those who see the good works, they know ultimately that it comes from God and not from ourselves, and therefore they glorify the one from whom all good things flow. The world needs light, church, does it not? It needs saltiness, too. It needs us to live as those who know what they're called to in this day and age. It's us to live as those who are distinct. That's what the world needs. That's what the world doesn't even know that it desires. I have more that I want to say, but for the sake of time, let me just give you these three things, and I won't expound on them because I think they're rather practical. I wanted to get just really quickly practical. How do we flavor? How do we preserve? And there was three things that I had just thought of. As we go about our lives, we flavor and we preserve through our knowledge, our true knowledge of Him, of Christ Jesus. We flavor through wisdom, which is the application of that true knowledge. And we flavor through the grace of God. And that's nothing that we do, but that's just a part of how we live. It's, it's how we speak. It's what we bring others into. This is how we flavor. This is how we preserve. And this is what the world needs, and this is what we're called to as his people. So I apologize. I can't necessarily get to all the rest of it, but that's really what I wanted to say here this morning. And just if you're taking notes, write down Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 17. And just this beautiful admonition of a distinct people that Paul gives so practically to the Ephesian church when he begins it by saying be imitators of Christ and he just goes through everything of what it is to be an imitator and all the things that we put off and all of the things that we walk in and so we ask today would you stand with me by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that he would do this in us Lord that we would enhance Lord that we would flavor Lord that we would illuminate that we would preserve, Lord, through our righteous acts, that we would be these front runners, these kingdom bearers, oh God. Lord, we repent today where we have allowed ourselves to, um, where we've conceded areas that we are to walk in, Father. And today in faith, we say we want to take those back. We want to be effective culture makers, Lord, for the kingdom of God. Lord, would you give us wisdom in how to do that in this city today? Would you show us, Lord, beyond just the practical of what we know, how we are to live, but strategically what we can put our hands to and how we are to do it, Father? We want to see this city changed and affected by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, we pray. Help each one of us, Father, in areas of our life where we have given ourselves over to where we have straddled perhaps one foot in and one foot out, Lord Jesus, would you help us today by your grace, for your glory. Amen.